Hello and welcome to Alert Radio for people who want to change the world. I'm Jeff Hughes. And I'm Chris Elby. On the program this week, I will be speaking to Ingo Schmidt on the German federal elections. And I'll be talking to Saul Landau, California writer and filmmaker, who's going to share with us his interviews uh, that he had with Fidel and Raul Castro in Cuba. He'll also be chatting with us about his home state, California, and some of the major cutbacks they're suffering right now and some of the protesting taking part because of it. And I'll have a discussion with Graham Thompson, who is a columnist with the Edmonton Journal. He'll be talking about a report issued by the Monk Center from Toronto about Canada's climate change plan and how they're planning on using carbon capture and storage as a major aspect of it. And Graham Thomas has a lot to say about that. That and much more right here on Alert Radio. Now for the alert headlines for the week of October 1st, 2009. Banks in the U.S. are taking risks again only a year after the financial crisis. Goldman Sachs, J.P. Morgan, Wells Fargo, Citigroup and Bank of America are five of the biggest banks involved in the risk-taking. They are betting on bonds, commodities and exotic financial products. These are the same kinds of risks that led to last year's crisis. Experts are concerned that the Wall Street banking system is not being monitored on a federal level. White House National Economic Council Director Lawrence Summers said that the financial system needs to be regulated to prevent a future crisis. High-risk endeavors undertaken by these major banks could affect the broader global economy. The U.S. government gave 10 major banks a $250 billion lifeline last year. This may encourage bankers to take even greater risks in the future. The government's attempt to prevent a collapse in the financial system could inadvertently perpetuate the cycle. After being ousted by a military coup in June, Honduran President Manuel Zelaya has now taken refuge along with his family in the Brazilian embassy in Honduras. Since his arrival last week, the Honduran coup government has repeatedly attacked the embassy with chemical warfare. The poisonous gases being sprayed by the armed forces are prohibited under international treaties. Labor laws and human rights in Honduras are currently being violated. Workers in the offshore industries have been forced to work overtime due to the coup-provoked crisis. The international community has acknowledged the harassment at the embassy and are condemning the illegal actions. An election has been scheduled by the de facto government, but the UN sees it as illegitimate. Zelaya has appealed to the UN to restore law in his country. He is calling for the people of Honduras to fight in the resistance in order to achieve constitutional reform. Somali food centers have been closed down by the World Food Program. The cuts to food aid are a direct result of U.S. restrictions. The U.S. has restricted aid after designating large parts of the country as being under terrorist control, despite the many people in these areas starving. The World Food Program does not have the funds to continue giving sufficient aid. The United Nations has reported that 3 million people in Somalia are in need of food. The Somalia humanitarian crisis is also being affected by the economic crisis and climate change. 
The arrest of Oscar-winning film director Roman Polanski on September 26th has caused international protest. 76-year-old Polanski was arrested by Swiss authorities acting on an extradition request made by the U.S. Justice Department. Polanski was on his way to accept a Lifetime Achievement Award at the Zurich Film Festival when he was intercepted by Swiss authorities. Organizers of the film festival, as well as foreign ministers in France and Poland, among others, have expressed their outrage at his arrest. Polanski's lawyers filed a motion for him to be released from Swiss custody. The Swiss Federal Criminal Court has responded that they will not decide for several weeks. Polanski was originally arrested in 1977 for sexual encounters with a minor. He had fled the U.S. before the trial and has been avoiding the arrest warrant for the past 31 years. Polanski has lived in France since leaving the U.S. He has worked on a number of acclaimed films, including 2002's Academy Award-winning The Pianist. Polanski's most recent film, The Ghost, is being put on hold because of the arrest. Europe is seeing a number of right-wing political parties gaining support in recent years. Most recently, Christian Democratic CDU Angela Merkel has been re-elected as chancellor in Germany. Her party will rule together with the far-right Free Democrats. Formerly, she ruled in an awkward 11-year coalition with the other major German party, the Social Democrats. Despite the economic crisis, voters were less inclined to support the mildly left-of-center Social Democrats, shifting their allegiance to the Christian Democrats and particularly to the far-right Free Democrats. The Christian Democrats got 33.8% of the vote. The Social Democrats fell off to 23%. Meanwhile, the Free Democrats rose unexpectedly to 15%. A far-left party called the Left Party improved its vote to 12%. It compromises former East German communists and figures from the far-left of the Social Democrats. Despite evidence of electoral fraud, the U.S. and NATO are recognizing Afghan President Hamid Karzai's re-election as legitimate. They believe that to delay a runoff voting could enable the Taliban to take control. The Obama administration initially deployed 21,000 more U.S. troops to Afghanistan. The U.S. presence did not prevent the Taliban from intimidating voters and Karzai from committing fraud. General Stanley McChrystal, the U.S. and NATO commander in the country, is urging Obama to deploy another 40,000 troops to win the Afghan war. And that's the alert headlines for the week of October 1st, 2009. And now for Around the Left for the week of October 2nd, 2009. FemFest 2009, Winnipeg's annual theater festival of plays by women, continues until October 4th. The festival features new works and readings by local and national playwrights. All shows are held at the Canwest Center for Theatre and Film at the University of Winnipeg. While on a visit to Sudan in 2003, Montreal resident Abusfian Abdelrazek was jailed without charge. During this time, he was beaten and tortured. In 2006, his name was placed on the UN no-fly list, which further prevented his return to Canada. All of this was done because he was believed to be a terrorist, though no evidence has been produced to support this, and Abdelrazek denies these allegations. Thanks to a surge of public support and donations, Abdelrazek has finally returned home and is now embarking on a speaking tour throughout Quebec, Ontario and Manitoba to talk about his experience. There is yet another film festival in Toronto, but at least this one is explicit about its political agenda. The movies of Uncommon Knowledge, or M-U-C-K, 
Film Festival used the cinema as its platform for social change. All films in this festival challenge popular conceptions of our social and political landscape and force us to reconsider conventional assumptions about the world around us. The festival is held at the Royal Theatre in Toronto and runs from October 1st to 4th. The goal of the Quebec Social Forum is to seek out and disseminate alternatives to capitalist, patriarchal, racist and homophobic forms of oppression and plan for Quebec's future. This year's forum is full of workshops, conferences and cultural activities that promote alternatives to the homogeny of neoliberal thinking. Held in Montreal, the 2009 Quebec Social Forum runs from October the 8th until the 12th. Is there an alternative to war in Afghanistan? A new book edited by Stephen Staples and Lucia Kowalchuk suggests peaceful alternatives are possible. The launch for the book, Afghanistan and Canada, is being held at Ottawa City Hall on October 2nd at 5.30 p.m. The editors of the book, as well as Peggy Mason, a former UN ambassador for disarmament, and Stephen Cornish of Care Canada will discuss peaceful alternatives to the current conflict in Afghanistan. And that was Around the Left for the week of October 2nd, 2009. For more information on any of the events listed in Around the Left in 7 Days, go to CanadianDimension.com and click on the tab labeled Events. This is Alert Radio. I'm Jeff Hughes. Graham Thompson is a columnist with the Edmonton Journal. This week, the Toronto-based Monk Centre released a controversial 63-page report written by Graham Thompson lambasting a major prong of Canada's climate change plan, namely building a system to capture and store carbon dioxide underground. We have Graham Thompson on the phone at his press gallery office in Edmonton. Welcome to Alert, Graham Thompson. Hi, Jeff. Thank you for joining us today. First off, tell us how you, a journalist, came to be the author of this report released by the Monk Centre. Well, actually, a year ago, I was uh, awarded a uh, Canadian Journalism Fellowship uh, at the University of Toronto. So what it allowed me to do was go to the University of Toronto and study whatever I wanted to study. And I was uh, intrigued because I come from Alberta and I cover the political scene here. This issue of carbon capture sequestration and the, the issue of energy and the environment and it's an intriguing issue because Alberta is trying to get ahead of the pack and putting in, in theory, $2 billion into this, this proposal. To what, what they want to do is capture emissions of carbon dioxide that's going into the atmosphere, which is a greenhouse gas, and contributing to global warming, climate change. Capture the CO2, compress it into a fluid, and then inject it underground. There are pilot projects being planned around the world, but Alberta wanted to get out ahead of anybody else and, and do this in a fully functioning pilot project, at least do three to five pilot projects and spend $2 billion. I was really intrigued as to what this actually could do. It sounds really promising in theory. So I began doing a lot of homework, and the Monk Center uh, asked me to do an actual report that was actually presented uh, last week in Toronto. And even though I'm a journalist... Um, the, the report was actually reviewed by scientists. There actually was a peer review process where a panel of scientists uh, got together and went through the paper to make sure it was actually accurate, because I know I'm not a scientist. And this does not purport to be a scientific paper. It's looking at the issue of carbon capture from the public policy idea. In other words, uh, politicians are promising us real solutions 
to global warming and climate change and CO2 emissions through carbon capture and sequestration. So I was wondering, you know, will, will this live up to all the hype? And the problem I'm finding is that there's a gap between what the politicians are promising we can do with this, in other words, uh, sequester billions of tons uh, of CO2, and what scientists say we can do for sure. And the problem is scientists, even though some of them think we can do this, um, we're not sure if we can do it on a massive scale globally to make a big impact on the emissions of CO2. Is it uh, going to be applied to the tar sands or coal-fired plants or uh, both? Yeah, that's a really good question because when this idea first came up a few years ago with Alberta, it was a way to make the oil sands cleaner. You know, the oil sands are the fastest-growing source of emissions in Canada. So the idea was uh, let's then take the emissions from the oil sands and, and capture them, compress them, pipe them, put them underground. The problem they're found is that the oil sands, the actual extraction process, the, the emissions are so diffused from different uh, sources. A lot of the emissions come from the huge trucks that they drive around, and you can't capture the emissions from the tailpipe. The best place to capture CO2 emissions is where you have massive amounts going into the atmosphere, namely from coal-fired plants. So it could actually help uh, reduce emissions at coal-fired plants. It's not so efficient or effective when it comes to the oil sands. We're speaking to Graham Thompson, political columnist with, from the Edmonton Journal. Now, can you tell us the report released by the Monk Centre, can you tell us the major concerns you have about Canada's plan to use CCS as part of its climate change action plan? I think the problem we have right now is, as I mentioned, the, the politicians are giving us promises, uh, assuring us that we, we can use carbon capture on a massive scale to solve our climate change, or at least solve a big problem, a part of our um, emissions in Canada, when the scientists don't really know if we can do it at a massive scale. That's sort of the, the, big, the overriding issue. I'm not saying it can't be done. If you were to pick a location underground, um, most locations likely be what's called saline aquifers, these big geological formations underground. They're like a, imagine a, a sponge uh, a rocky sponge, and in the pore space you've got salt water. Well, you inject the liquid CO2 into those pore spaces, and there's a huge amount of potential capacity underground to capture and maintain the CO2 underground. But and and there are some pilot projects in the world investigating this, but no one has done it at scale, at a huge scale. No one's actually done it from a coal-fired plant and put it underground. So there's lots of questions about can we do this, can we do it safely, can we do it efficiently and quickly enough to make a difference on climate change. There's also the issue of regulations and liability. Uh, these are to do with the fact if you were to put this stuff underground, not just for a, a year or two, we're talking about forever, we're talking about putting in billions of tons of CO2 emissions underground for, forever. What happens if it starts to leak in 50 years? Who is liable for that? That's a big question because who wants to put this stuff underground if we don't know who's actually liable for it if it actually comes back to the surface or if it actually maybe migrates into groundwater and starts to pollute groundwater because the stuff we're putting underground wouldn't just be pure CO2 like you get from Perrier water. This would be coming from a smokestack and a, and a um, coal plant. It could have mercury 
arsenic and other contaminants in it. So if it gets into the groundwater, that could cause major problems. So who's responsible for cleaning it up? So these, these are questions that have not been answered in Canada. The U.S. is moving ahead on regulations. Uh, we are still, it seems to me, dragging our feet when it comes to those kind of uh, updating our regulations for this. Also, the issue of public debate. In the U.S., they've had public discussions. In Canada, it's all behind closed doors. Now, we spoke a little bit uh, about some it coming back once it's been put under the ground. Um, now, can you tell our listeners a little bit about Lake Nyos? That's something that people think of when uh, CO2 might uh, burst from the ground. But we, can you uh, clarify for our listeners how that might not be what the case is with CCS in Canada? Yeah, this is an issue. Of course, this is the, the big disaster that happened back in 1986 when a, a, a giant plume of this is naturally occurring carbon dioxide suddenly erupted from the bottom of Lake Niles in Cameroon and actually killed uh, 1,700 people who were sleeping. Now, carbon dioxide, first of all, is not a poisonous gas. It can asphyxiate you at, at certain levels above 20 or 30 percent. Uh, but Lake Niles was, was a naturally like a, like a giant burp, a naturally occurring CO2 burp. Um, the difference with, with that from man-made, man-sequestered carbon dioxide is when this stuff goes into the ground, it's into this sort of porous space in this rocky formation like a sponge. So the analogy is if it was to leak, it wouldn't be like a balloon burst. It's more like you, you stick a pin into a sponge. It would leak relatively slowly. It would not come rushing out at once. Uh, that is... You know, what we're hearing from scientists who are both sort of in favor and against CCS, there wouldn't be a massive eruption uh, of, of, of CO2 into the atmosphere if it was to leak. This is Alert Radio. I'm Jeff Hughes speaking to Graham Thompson. Can you tell us how you arrived at the conclusions that are in your report recently released? What was the source of your research and information? Oh, I, I spent a lot of time uh, uh, talking to scientists. Um, I talked to different, different government agencies, companies. A lot of information I got came from, from the U.S. The U.S. seems to be uh, further ahead than us uh, when it comes to looking at massive scale carbon capture and sequestration. So I, did, I spent months researching this. And as I said before, I'm a journalist. I'm not a scientist. So I did what journalists do all the time. That's research a topic, talk to uh, a wide variety of people, and then condense it into what I hope is a readable form. In this case, it was 65 pages, so I did have more time than the average reporter has to pull it together and present it. And as I mentioned earlier, uh, the Monk Center made sure there was actually a panel of expert uh, scientists who actually uh, did a peer review uh, of the paper, make sure it was actually scientifically sound. And the reaction from the scientific community? Actually, um, like I said, the scientists have been really supportive. Uh, I know the Alberta government um, has been you know, saying, well, look, you know, Graham Thompson is not a scientist, and, I, and I've just mentioned my counter-argument to that, uh, but also, um, you know, the government's saying, look, it has scientists um, working for the government and the Alberta Research Council, and some of them really, really good scientists, and, and I'm not questioning the scientists uh, in that sense, who are saying that CCS uh, can work if, if we do the pilot projects and carefully select the sites, and I would say, I, I think they're right when it comes to if you pay enough money and do enough research on a particular site that you're going to sequester the CO2 and you have the proper regulations in place and do it really carefully, I would say, yes, you can make it work. But the question becomes not just at one location. What about when you have thousands of locations? 
you know, in Canada and around the world, that's when you may start to run into, into problems. Alberta, for example, is saying it wants to, um, it's starting off pilot projects that still have yet to be announced, um, but it's hoping uh, by the year 2050 to, to be sequestering uh, 140 million tons. I put that in, in context. Right now, around the world, there are some small projects going on that are sequestering between 3 and 5 million globally. We're talking in Alberta alone, putting 140 million tons under the ground every single year. And so we're talking about billions of tons. And there's no scientist right now who knows if that will be the case. Now, maybe it will work, but my point in the paper is we've got politicians telling us at this point today, yes, it's proven, yes, it will work, and we can meet our emission guidelines and targets through carbon capture. And what I'm saying is that politicians are making promises that scientists don't know if we can keep. And, and by making these promises now, it may lull people into a sense of false security that we've found a solution. And it may detract from spending money, time, and research in other aspects of reducing our emissions, you know, through green energy, through uh, solar, or, or even through uh, conservation. So my concern is that politicians tend to use this as a political fix as opposed to looking at the issue on a larger scale. Uh, I did want to ask you about uh, some politicians, but first I wanted to just ask you if industry has reacted to your report uh, in which the term folly was used. Um, I haven't heard from industry, because uh, in a sense, industry hasn't actually done anything uh, regarding the new pilot projects. Alberta is looking at, hopefully, signing, it says, contracts with uh, three consortium to actually start uh, pilot projects in Alberta. One last question for you before we uh, wrap this up, Graham Thompson. We understand that Barack Obama and Stephen Harper are enthusiastic supporters of this technology, carbon capture and storage, and are investing lots of money on the research, and the, and the same, of course, as you've said, for the Alberta government provincially. Why do you think these leaders are so committed to carbon capture and storage? Because we rely on carbon. Uh, look at uh, Alberta, of course. you get the oil sands, and we do a lot of uh, oil production in Alberta and Saskatchewan. Uh, there's also the, the coal-fired uh, plants. There's a lot of coal states in the U.S. So our economy is I'm not, I, I, I'd understand this. Like We rely on carbon. We rely on um, not only exploiting carbon, we rely on burning carbon. Seventy percent of, uh, of the power produced in Alberta comes from coal-fired plants. So there's a lot of politicians who realize that their political futures are on, at stake here. So if they were to come out and say, um, gee, you know, this, this might not work, they, they could be in big trouble. So by promising us something, it does get them off the hook uh, because we do live in a carbon-constrained world, but we also live in a carbon-based economy, especially in Canada, especially in Alberta. So it does give the politicians, to me, a, an easy way out. It's a political fix. And in your report, do you conclude that the project should be abandoned? What would be the consequence of that? I, you know, I'm not saying abandon it. I, I'm saying it, that there is um, an environmental group uh, out here uh, based uh, in Alberta. The uh, Pembina Institute is saying, look, you know, let's by all means investigate carbon capture, but let's use it as a bridging mechanism. You know, let, let's, let's, in a sense, if we want to reduce our emissions relatively quickly, we can use carbon capture and sequestration to get our emissions down, but let's not make it a long-term solution. 
let's use it in limited uh, capacity to then start looking at other things, green energy, other ways of reducing our emissions that don't involve burning more carbon and producing more carbon dioxide. Well, Graham Thompson, columnist for the Edmonton Journal, thank you very much for joining us today on Alert. The report that you wrote was released by the Toronto-based Monk Centre, and uh, people can find it online? Yes, they can, by going to the Monk Centre. It's on, online there. Well, thank you very much for joining us today on Alert Radio. Okay, Jeff, it's been my pleasure. Goodbye. Bye-bye. When we first contacted California-based writer and filmmaker Saul Landau, our idea was to have him talk about what's happening out there. Sounds like all hell is breaking loose. University of California's faculty walking out in protest against cuts to post-secondary education. Over a thousand San Francisco hotel workers and their community supporters demonstrating in Union Square in the heart of the city's tourist district and other stuff we don't know about. Uh, Sounds like folks out there are not too happy with their government and their employers. But when we got hold of Saul, he had just returned from a visit to Cuba. Saul is a world-renowned expert on Cuba, and he informed us that he had interviewed both Fidel Castro and Raul Castro. So we want to hear about that. First off, Saul, welcome to Alert. Well, thank you for having me back. Well, you are welcome. We love having you as a guest here. Uh, Tell us what you talked about uh, to each of uh, the brothers there, Fidel and Raul. Well, I think maybe you should reverse that question and say, what did they talk to us about? Sure, fair enough. <laughs> yes. Um, well, first of all, I mean, I want to emphasize that um, we, we spent three hours with Fidel. Okay. At his home, um, he was wearing a pair of Adidas, you know, type, you know, uh, training pants and uh, um, a sports shirt about the, you know, quality that I would buy in a cheap department store. Uh, <laughs> He was surrounded by his grandchildren, his youngest son, and his wife. Okay. In a very modest but, you know, clean and comfortable house. And um, one of the first things he did was uh, to show us uh, Obama's book, his autobiography, in Spanish. And uh, to show that he not only read it with care, but with great care, he, sh- he sort of flipped slowly through the pages. And every page was underlined with lots and lots of notes in the margin. Okay. And he talked about Obama, saying, you know, this man is highly intelligent, creative, imaginative. And it kind of reminded him, you know, we got the image of Gulliver being tied down by these little foolish little dwarfs. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, so here's this guy with terrific intentions and nobility, and he can't move. Right. And, uh, And then in the middle of the conversation, Fidel says, you know, I can understand the difficulties Obama's having. You know, I used to be a politician myself. <laughs> so I want to emphasize how retired he is and how he stressed how much he loves reading and writing his little essays. Right. And clearly, you know, his family is happy to have him around. Well, um, but my, I was impressed by the enormous discipline that he showed in making the transition from what I would call, you know, I mean, if there was ever an adrenaline junkie, it had to be Fidel Castro over the last, what, 55 or more years. Oh, for sure. I mean, he's I mean, had an the, energy that hasn't stopped until, obviously, his health, which was my next question. How is his health? Well, he seemed, you know, he seemed pretty vigorous in, in terms of his speech. He was very lucid. Um, 
he explained that he still wasn't walking all that well because when he took a fall about four years ago, right. he fractured his knee in several places. And he said the healing is never going to be perfect. Right. And at the same time, he showed he couldn't really raise his arm above elbow level uh, because he had jammed his shoulder when he broke his fall. Okay. But aside from that, uh, he said he's feeling really good. His appetite's good. He's uh, getting plenty of exercise. And uh, he seemed genuinely happy to see the group of Americans that uh, came to visit him. Small, very small group. And what about his brother, Raul? What's his role now? Obviously, he's, he's taken over uh, Fidel's position in Cuba. Well, yes. I mean, Cuba has gone from, how should I say it, one of the great micromanagers of all time uh, um, to a man who is uh, one of the foremost administrators and delegators. I mean, these guys have been partners, and people should remember this, since, well, 1952-53, when they organized an attack on Fort Moncada in eastern Cuba. Okay. Uh, they were partners when they went to jail in uh, the Isle of Pines, and then they went into exile together, and then they plotted the guerrilla landing, and they landed on the yacht Grandma, and then they fought as guerrillas in the mountains for two years. And when they took over, Fidel uh, delegated only to his brother the, the key tasks, organizational tasks of the island, organizing the armed forces, uh, organizing the Communist Party, then reorganizing the party. And in the... Uh, you know, every time there was a really difficult job, it was Raul who got it, and got it done, by the way. And, my next and now he's, well, I asked him a question, for example. i give you an example. I wanted to know what his views were on certain issues surrounding these five Cubans who are in prison in the United States. They're called the Cuban Five. Yes, yes. And uh, Raul said, yes, I know all about that, but you have to talk to Alarcon because that's his department. Oh. Now, Asking Fidel about that, I got quite, you know, a long answer. Okay. But there's the difference in style, which you asked me about, and there it is. Raul delegates. And so talk to us a little bit about what you, um, I mean, the two brothers have, you know, rode a bumpy road, and they've done it quite well together. So their styles are quite different then, Saul, is that correct? Their styles are very different, and they're both incredibly disciplined people. They both came from that uh, highly uh, rigorous Jesuit education that they got together, and uh, so that they have this, uh, you know, this behavior which uh, in, in which they can withstand all kinds of uh, difficulties and hardships and still keep focused and so on. I mean, think you know that they got that from that Jesuit education, mm-hmm. and uh, we spoke with Fidel for three hours, and Raúl went on for two hours. And at the end of it, he says, "Oh my God." I talked for two hours. And I'm so, getting like, just like my big brother. And so what was his conversation about compared to Fidel's? Well, he, he did have one piece of what I think is breaking news, and so we might as well break it on this program, Let's okay? Let's do it. Um, he was talking about U.S.-Cuba relations, mm-hmm. and uh, he, he said that the migration and uh, direct mail flight talks on these two subjects were going really quite well. He was quite satisfied with the tenor and progress of the talks. And then he said, um, and of course he's willing to sit down at any time with the United States to talk about any subject that they want, like the embargo, the U.S. basic Guantanamo, and he said any aspect of human rights, provided of course we meet on the basis of equality and there's no shadow over Cuban independence. 
And he said, we've done one more thing. As he talked about good relations between the Cuban military and the U.S. military on the opposite sides of the U.S. base at Guantanamo. He said that they meet, and they have been meeting, since 1994, uh, on the third Friday of every month, on issues surrounding base security, and that the relations have become quite amicable. After he said that, uh, and how tensions had been relieved, because prior to that, the Americans had done really uh, provocative things at the base. I mean, some of them were throwing rocks. They occasionally shot and even killed one, a Cuban, you know, back before 94. And there's, you know, uh, footage, uh, newsreel footage uh, of them mooning the, the, uh, the Cubans on. But anyway, he said, so relations are much less tense and more friendly. And he said, and here's the news, and it might be the response to Hillary Clinton, Secretary of State, who said that after uh, removing travel restrictions for Cuban-Americans and remittance res- restrictions, she said the ball's in Cuba's court now. We expect some reciprocity. And so here's what Raul revealed. Okay. That the United States has asked for, and Cuba has agreed to, allow overflights from the U.S. base in Guantanamo to the United States in cases where people are ill. Uh, now, this, if people know their maps, will see that you can save an hour or more of flying time this way. Right. This Raul is a big step. This. <laughs> hmm? this is a big step. It's a step. And Raul said they're doing it on a case-by-case basis, okay. but thus far Cuba has approved all of the U.S. requests. That's fantastic and news. <laughs> that, and so there you have it, a breaking news uh, on your show. Well, that's fantastic. And that's, you know, hopefully it'll be a domino effect and it'll lead to be- bigger and, and better things uh, for well, both countries and their relationship. Um, let's hope that the ball is now in the U.S. court and something, um, you know, larger gets done, like removal of the travel ban. No, I would agree. Um, tell us about your impressions uh, of Cuba now to when you were last there. Well, I think Cuba is facing a serious liquidity crisis and a very deep crisis in a, in the economy. It's a fairly dysfunctional economy, and I think steps are going to have to be taken very soon. They're now in a, a consulting mode. The population is now in a discussion as to what ought to be done, Ray wages, Ray work discipline, uh, all of the issues that are really plaguing this country that can't pay its bills. I mean, one must remember that it... It did suffer three devastating hurricanes last year. The Cubans estimate the damage at around $10 billion. For an island that size, that's really considerable. That's massive. It is massive. But above and beyond that, uh, the Cuban wage structure, their work structure, the way their agriculture is organized has become really dysfunctional. And everybody knows they're going to have to take a step. And they have postponed their party congress because obviously they haven't reached a consensus. Um, I mean, Cubans are the most entitled people in the world. I don't know, the Canadian tourists who go down there might realize this. But, you know, what other people think the government owes them food, uh, you know, aside from medical care, education, practically free transport, free rent, which nobody else has? You would really expect a ration book, right? Right. Well, and so these people who have been conditioned, it's not their fault, the government's conditioned them. You know, this is like the social contract. Right. To, uh, to feel entitled. Of course. And so when they don't get what they really expect, they have, you know, I would say, elevated whining into an art form. <laughs> 
Oh, my. Okay. So, you know what? Let's switch gears a little bit and talk about uh, California now. What the heck is going on there, Sol? Well, um, in Northern California, you can smell the smoke from the fire at the Crater Lake Forest. And in Southern California, you can smell the smoke now from the, the new Santa Ana Wind Cause fire. Oh, my. Um, but that, you know, that just adds literally... Uh, a, a lot of smoke to an already very huge furnace. This state, which has supposedly the eighth largest economy in the world, is broke. I mean, this, it is unbelievable what is going on here. And how is that possible? How is it possible? Yeah. Because majority rule is not practiced in the state of California. Okay. The, the uh, California legislature, to pass a budget, needs two-thirds of the vote, not a majority. And it is very difficult to get that two-thirds of the vote. Thus, it can't collect taxes to support public health, to support public education, to support public transportation, to support the, the state parks. And the reason is that the rich people of California don't use education, public health, public transportation, and they have state parks on their own estates. Okay. So why should they pay for them? So that's the big, okay. And that is, I think, the root of it. Now, the California voters foolish, foolishly passed these ballot measures over the years that allowed this to happen. And, you know, they, they were promised, wow, if you vote for this, then your, uh, your, your uh, taxes on your home can't be raised more than a few dollars a year, and you're going to save a lot, 100 or 200 or $500. Well, that, of course, was true, but the... People who own $10 million houses are saving 100000 or $200,000. They're the ones who really reap the benefits. The small uh, homeowner uh, essentially is paying because now his, his son or his daughter in public school doesn't get a science teacher or doesn't have an art teacher or a music teacher, and there's no nursing school or there's no physical education teacher. And the teacher who... Uh, two years ago or three years ago, had 25 kids in the class, now has 45 kids in oh the class. Oh, my goodness. That's and impossible to manage. That's exactly <laughs> right. And the teacher has to now buy supplies out of his or her own pocket because the supply budget has gone down. And it's gone all the way from kindergarten up to the highest level, the University of California, which at one time was, you know, like some Ivy League schools in Berkeley and UCLA. We've got about a minute left, Saul, so I don't want to, I just have to interject. Yeah. Talk to us about reaction and about the University of California, as you mentioned, the faculty, about the walking out. So we've got about a minute. The faculty, the, the hardest hit people, of course, are the lowest wage workers at the university. And they're the ones, along with some of the faculty, who have walked out and gone on strike, certainly at UCLA. Okay. And people are really, really angry. And they've been sold out by their governor, by their legislature, and ultimately they've fallen victim to this sort of right-wing Reagan-esque talk about, oh, taxes are bad and government shouldn't collect any. Well, when government doesn't collect any, your education system falls down. You know, I'll give you a last dramatic example. The budget for HIV testing in, uh, in many counties in California has been reduced to almost zero. Oh, that's unforgivable. That's there unforgivable. you have it. Yeah. No, I mean, there's a lot going on. There is a lot going on. And we're going to get you back, Sol, because we're going to want to have an update on what's going to happen in the next little while on some of these issues. Thank you again for always sharing your insight into many different issues that we bring you on for. And uh, we will talk soon. Thank you for having me. Thank you, Sol.
Bye. And that was Saul Landau, California-based writer and filmmaker. This is Alert Radio. I'm Jeff Hughes. I'm joined now by Dr. Ingo Schmidt. He is an academic coordinator of labor studies in the Center for Work and Community Studies at Athabasca University. His past research has focused on trade unions in Germany, European integration, and international political economics. He's speaking to us from his home in Vancouver. Thank you for joining us here on Alert Radio, Dr. Ingo Schmidt. Well, thanks for having me. Now, we're talking to you on the occasion of the German election, which uh, resulted in uh, and the ending of an 11-year coalition between the conservative Christian Democrats and the Social Democrats. Now, as we understand it, the far-right Free Democrats, with 15% of the vote, did exceptionally well, allowing Angela Merkel's Christian Democrats to dispense with their Social Democratic partners. So can you tell us what kind of government will this new coalition of the right produce, Ingo, Dr. Ingo Schmidt? Um, well, I will happily try to uh, answer that question. Uh, maybe I should start by uh, qualifying far-right liberals. The Liberal Party in Germany is not a far-right party in the sense of uh, xenophobia, uh, nationalism, and things like that. Uh, it is uh, an extreme tax-cutting anti-welfare state party. So they are the most extreme neoliberal party that we do have in Germany. And the curiosity of this uh, election is uh, that the liberal party has never been so strong uh, as in this election. And this happens at a time when neoliberalism, uh, the idea that markets uh, should rule and governments uh, should stay on the side, um, is severely questioned uh, by the economic crisis which uh, started just a year ago. So this is something which uh, probably needs some further exploration. Uh, but uh, coming back uh, to your question, what do we have to expect? What uh, we will see in the near future, I think, is that the liberals, as the extreme uh, tax-cutting uh, and spending-cutting party, will make uh, fairly extreme claims to lower taxes, to lower uh, welfare spending, and to deregulate labor markets. And obviously, organized capital is very much in favor of that. However, the conservatives, um, who really are in a way a people's party, um, not as strong as they were in the past, but still they have working class voters. Conservative or workers can be conservative too, you know, uh, and they in their way also like a welfare state. Uh, and uh, leading uh, conservatives, including re-elected Chancellor Merkel, already said there won't be a frontal attack uh, on the welfare state in Germany. So uh, my bet is we will see a shift to the right, but it will not go as far as the liberals are hoping for. Well, can you give us your explanation for the collapse of the social democratic vote, especially in the face of this year-old global economic crisis? Um, yeah. Um, actually, I think uh, there are two periods. One is a little bit longer, uh, and that's the decline of social democracy, which started uh, actually after the last economic uh, crisis in 2001. At that point, uh, the Social Democrats were leading the government in a coalition with the Green Party. Uh, and uh, faced with an economic crisis, they decided we have to um, engage in uh, 
spending cuts attacking the welfare state, and they have done so actually in an unprecedented manner, much more aggressively than the conservatives have ever done. Um, and unlike uh, many conservative uh, voters, pretty much uh, all voters uh, of the Social Democrats want to see some sort of a welfare state, and for that matter were extremely unhappy with what the Social Democrats did, and this uh, led to a decline in uh, membership um, of the party and also uh, voters just running away from the party. Uh, and uh, in this election, this um, decline of the Social Democrats kind of turned into an outright crash. There's no other word for that. They lost uh, more than 11% of their vote. They're down to 23%, which is their lowest uh, uh, result uh, ever since the Second World War. Um, and I think uh, this is because uh, the Social Democrats, uh, who were a junior partner until uh, the Sunday election of the Conservatives, made no attempt to uh, defend the interests of working people, of unemployed people, of youth, of retired people um, during the uh, economic crisis. They were kind of uh, tightly knit into the Conservative government, uh, and people do actually have a taste for social protection, uh, they just couldn't see Social Democrats catering to that expectation. We're going to have to leave it there. Thank you very much, Dr. Ingo Schmidt, for speaking to us this afternoon. You're very welcome. I'm Jeff Hughes. This is Alert Radio. This is Mitch Podolik, and this is Music is the Weapon, and I'm going to continue again this week with some Canadian songwriters. Uh, two great writers, one relatively new and one relatively old and gone. First of all, I want to introduce you to Don Freed, who is a man from Saskatchewan, who some years ago, about 20 years ago, at a family funeral, discovered that he was a Matisse. And he went out and he began to research all of that, and he wrote a 15-song collection of music and stories that celebrated the whole history of the Metis people from the time of the immigration from France and, and from Scotland and all of that. And he, together, has written a classic history in music. And here are two songs that celebrate Louis Riel. Buffalo would run, Gabriel would ride out with his gun To get some meat for the winter supply Cause he knew that his people could starve and die Ride, Gabriel, ride Ride, Gabriel, ride With liberty right by your side Ride, Gabriel, ride Ride, Gabriel, ride He'd hunt until he needed no more then he'd hunt for the sick and poor The lame and the old and the ones with no guns He called out the society of generous ones Ride, Gabriel, ride Ride, Gabriel, ride With liberty right by your side Ride 
just to go in luck In case you got something no. Bon chance, Arkin. Et vous aussi, vos chemins. Brillat, Caron, Carrière, Champagne, Bélon, Desjardins, Dubois, Dufour, Dumas, Dumont, Féance. Fiddler, Fleury, Garrity, Gervais, Henri, La Dessous, La Fontaine, La Miron, La Plante, Les Deux, Les Pins. Montour, Nolène, Olette, Peranton, Pilon, Patras, Racette, Régnier, Rochelieu, Saint-Germain, Ferrand, Turcotte, Vendel, Permette, Villeneuve. Bonne chance, mes amis. Mes amis, bras. That was Ride, Gabriel Ride, and One Year Gone, two songs by Don Freed about the time of Riel. When I was a kid at summer camp, one of the songs we used to sing was the Black Fly song. We were up in northern Ontario, and we were getting eaten by black flies, and along came this wonderful song. And this song turns out to be written by a tremendous man named Wade Hemsworth, who only wrote 16 songs, but... You know them. You know a lot of them. You've heard a lot of them. You've seen them on television. You've seen animations of, of this song and the next song. So here are two great songs, the Black Fly song and the Log Driver's Waltz. T'was early in the spring when I decided to go for to work up in the woods in North Ontario. And the unemployment office said they'd send me through to the little abitibi with the survey crew The black flies, the little black flies Always the black fly, no matter where you go I'll die with the black fly, I pick in my bones In North Ontario, oh, in North Ontario The man Black Toby was the captain of the crew And he said, I'm gonna tell you boys what we're gonna do They want to build a power dam, we must find a way for To make the little lab floor run the other way With the black flies, the little black flies Always the black fly, no matter where you go I'll die with the black fly, picking my bones In North Ontario, oh, in North Ontario So we survey to the east, survey to the west Couldn't make our minds up how to do it best Little lab, little lab, what shall I do? I'm almost going crazy with the survey crew And the black flies, the little black flies Always the black fly, no matter where you go I'll die with the black fly, picking my bones In North Ontario, oh, in North Ontario Black fly, black fly everywhere A-crawling in your whiskers, crawling in your hair Swimming in the soup, swimming in the tea And the devil take the black fly, let me be And the black flies, the little black flies Always the black fly, no matter where you go I'll die with the black fly, picking my bones In North Ontario, oh, in North Ontario 
Black Toby fell to swearing the work went slow. The stator for morale was to get pretty low. The flies swarm heavy, hard to catch your breath. You just take it up and down the trail, talking to yourself. The black flies, the little black flies, always the black fly, no matter where you go. I'll die with the black fly picking my bones in North Ontario, in North Ontario. If you ask any girl from the parish around what pleases her most from her head to her toes, she'll say, I'm not sure that it's business of yours, but I do like to waltz with a log driver, for he goes burling down a down white water. That's where the log driver learns to step lightly, yes, burling down a down white water. A log driver's walk pleases girls completely. When the drive's nearly over, I like to go down to see all the lads as they work on the river. I know that come evening they'll be in the town, and we all want to waltz with a log driver, for he goes burling down a down white water. That's where the log driver learns to step lightly, yes, burling down a down white water. A log driver's waltz pleases girls completely. To please both my parents, I've had to give way and dance with the doctors and the merchants and lawyers. Their manners are fine, but their feet are of clay, and there's none with the style of a log driver, for he goes burling down a down white water. That's where the log driver learns to step lightly as burling down a down white water. A log driver's waltz pleases girls completely. Now I've had my chances with all sorts of men. There's none is so fine as my lad on the river. And when the drive's over, if he asks me again, I think I will marry my log driver. For he goes burling down a down white water. That's where the log driver learns to step lightly. It's burling down a down white water. A log driver's waltz pleases girls completely. Down a down white water, a log driver's walls pleases girls completely. That was Wade Hemsworth with the Black Fly song and the log driver's walls. This is Music is the Weapon. I'm Mitch Pollock. I'll see you next week. And that is Alert Radio for the week of October 1st, 2009. I'm Jeff Hughes. And I'm Chris Elby. Thanks, as usual, to the people that help us put this radio program together. Sagan Morrow for writing the headlines. Ben Wood for Around the Left in Seven Days. Also, Mitch Padalek for Music is the Weapon. Our technical producer, Tommy Allen. And our executive producer, Cy Gonick. 
Alert Radio is a production of Canadian Dimension Magazine. And you can hear it in 12 cities across the country in community and campus radio stations. You can also log on to rabble.ca or canadiandimension.com. Also, Mitch Podolik for Music is the Weapon. And if you'd like to send us your ideas, comments, or suggestions, we'd love to hear from you. Email us at alert at canadiandimension.com.